0: The History of Literature Podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio.
1: Edith Wharton's lovely figurines Still speak to me today From their mantelpiece in time Where they wrestle and they play With passions and with prudences Finances and fears Her face, what it's worth to her In the passing
0: of the Hello. She was born Edith Newbold Jones in 1862 in a brownstone on West 23rd Street in New York City. Today, you'd find a Starbucks there and the Flatiron Building very close by. But back then, this was a neighborhood for elites. Three years after she was born, the Fifth Avenue Opera House was built around the corner. Her parents were wealthy, a descendant of the old patroon families, who had received land grants from the former Dutch government of New York. She was related to heroes of the Revolutionary War, like General Ebenezer Stevens. The Astors were cousins. Although she was born in the Civil War, the war didn't affect the Joneses too much, except that the depreciation in American currency led to her family's traveling in Europe. At a young age, she visited France, Italy, Germany, and Spain, and soon became fluent in French, German, and Italian. As a girl, she contracted typhoid fever while at a spa in the Black Forest and nearly died. She was living like a princess, almost, like a rich girl, with governesses and tutors and fancy balls and parties. This is the sort of woman Henry James wrote about, the Americans on the rise, wealthy Americans with the means to re-engage with Europe. And indeed, later in life, she and James became close friends. As a girl and a young teen, she was writing too, poetry and fiction both. She had some early successes with poems published in magazines here and there, a completed novella, and some poems and translations that her father had privately published. It was clear what she wanted to do, but she was also in the world of debutante balls and socialite commitments. She didn't go to college, this was still in the 1880s, and although she was well-educated, thanks to her tutors and governesses, it was not at all expected that she'd go to college. Instead, she went back and forth to Europe, a practice she would continue all her life, crossing the Atlantic 60 times altogether. In 1885, she married Edward Wharton, who went by Teddy, who was from a dignified Boston family and shared her interest in travel. She was also fascinated by American houses and gardens, and wrote several design books, books like The Decoration of Houses and Italian Villas. She loved Italy. She also wrote about France and visited Morocco. Money has its privileges, but it doesn't always buy happiness. Unfortunately, Teddy suffered from depression. By 1908, her husband was essentially incurable, suffering terribly from mental health issues. She began to have an affair with a journalist from the Times, and after 28 years of marriage, she got divorced from Teddy. She was writing now, writing fiction, and the quality was getting very good. She spent time in Newport, Rhode Island, where she had a house, and the Berkshires, where she also had a house that she herself designed. She wrote The House of Mirth in 1905, which had one of her great subjects, Old New York. Henry James was an admirer and a friend. The two had much in common. The novels and prizes began coming faster now, including what we now know as classics like Ethan Frome, written in 1911, The Custom of the Country, written in 1913, and The Age of Innocence, which was published in 1920, and for which she won the Pulitzer Prize. She also wrote several travel books, works of poetry, and collections of stories, 85 or so short stories in all. There are only three or four American novelists who can be thought of as major, said Gorvidal, and Edith Wharton is one. She died in France in 1937. The song we were listening to at the start was by Suzanne Vega, Edith Wharton's Figurines, which Vega wrote as a tribute to Olivia Goldsmith, an author who died suddenly while under sedation for cosmetic surgery. Vega was moved by the story, and it reminded her of the example set by Edith Wharton, who wrote, among other themes, about the expectations that society placed on women. The pressure to conform, the pressure to be ladylike, the pressure to be wifely, and the pressure, above all, to be beautiful. We've got a special treat for you today. Mike Palindrome is back, El Presidente himself. He's here to discuss one of Edith Wharton's short stories, Roman Fever, which we will also hear— no need to run out and read it unless you'd like to. We will be reading it for you here on the History of Literature Podcast because that's what we do. We try our best. And if you'd like to try your best to help support the show and the cause of literature, please do head on over to Patreon.com slash literature, where we have some new bonus content for our Patreon subscribers. Two original Jack Wilson works. One of them is called Candy and is very bleak, and the other is a little less bleak, but you know me, dear listeners. I like my chocolate dark and bitter. I like my skies cloudy. And I like my vacations full of cozy fireplaces with storms howling outside. I never get too far in happiness before the black dogs come barking up the path. That's just how it is. I can rise to great heights, but when I reach those heights, I like to look out on the vast landscape of loneliness and melancholy and sadness and nostalgia. Happiness, too. Let's not forget that guy. Mr. Happiness, and I can enjoy his company as much as anyone. But anyway, enough of that. Let's get Mike in here, which is sheer happiness, as always. We will do that after this quick break. See
1: the portrait come to life. See the vanity behind Because in the struggle for survival, Love is never blind Edith Warden's lovely figurines Still speak to me today From their mantelpiece in time Where they wrestle and they play We lie under anesthesia Our wit and wonder.
0: Okay, joining me now is our old friend and sometimes feverish guest, Mike Palindrome, the president of the Literature Supporters Club, who's here to help us unpack the story Roman Fever. Mike, welcome back to the History of Literature. Hey, Jack. So, Mike, are you a fan of Edith Wharton?
2: You know, I really want to be a fan of her. (laughs) Um, I actually, I went... The closest I've become, I've come to being a fan of her is uh, I went to see her house in the Berkshires. Which I have is now, been there too. Yeah. Which is now a wonderful museum. Yeah. Well, uh, outdoor grounds where they yep. have, um, a Shakespeare company put yes. on productions. Yeah. Also. You
0: get to pull up in the gravel driveway and that sort of circular driveway with the, the nice entrance. And I really remember the bedroom where you get to see where she used to write pages of her manuscript and then drop them on the floor, and her servant would come in and and gather oh. it up.
2: Yeah, right. And so I, and in the in the gift shop, I was so over, I was so pleased by the tour, and overwhelmed by the the ambiance of the place. that I almost made the mistake of buying a novel of hers, but I <laughs> caught myself in time, and I escaped without having spent money on, on a book of hers.
0: Okay, so you've got <laughs> a bit of antipathy toward her. What about the New York con- connection? Does her look at old New York or the Gilded yeah. Age appeal to you as a New Yorker?
2: I I, I love Henry James, mm-hmm. and I not that you should pick one or the other, but I feel like when I'm in the mood for this very formal realism that is almost... I mean, I don't want to say Henry James lacks style, but his style, his style is so, so perfect mm. that you almost don't notice it. And I, I reach for Henry James. I guess that's my way of saying that rather than Edith Wharton. And I can't help but put them together in the same camp.
0: So you would, if you're reading Wharton, you think, why am I just not reading Henry James? There's plenty of Henry James to read.
2: Yeah. Uh,
0: what about the New York though? Do you think that she's, and I'm thinking here of The Age of Innocence and the Scorsese movie, The Age of Innocence, which I think was a surprise to me until I recognized the New York connection. Do you think the New York that she describes continues to this day, or is it too far in the past to seem relevant to you as, as anything more than a historical curiosity?
2: I feel in my heart the latter. I, mm. I, I almost think that she's she's a bit of a time capsule. Mm-hmm. and. There's such a fascination with the way she's captured her time period. But, you know, when you read it, 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 I find it a little hard to relate. Mm -hmm. These these like relationship machinations and the injustices that they feel, you know. um, I mean, I haven't read enough of her to see how she handles class. But I, I seem to remember that there's a lot of just like nuances between the rich among the rich
0: Mm. Mm -hmm. well we see that in the story we're about to read you know she was a jones as in keeping up with the joneses that phrase comes (laughs) from her family yeah (laughs) i forgot that yeah (laughs) and that is the kind of thing i think that that often blocked me from enjoying her when i especially when i was younger i was a little angrier about the wealthy uh, when i was younger i still am angry about the wealthy but i have a kind of a soft spot for edith wharton now so i I, i'm able to enjoy her writing even though sometimes i roll my eyes at just how rich these people are
2: yeah uh, franzen has a great piece about um you know reassessing wharton and he has this line he says no major american novelist has led a more privileged life than edith wharton did
0: (laughs) yeah i can't believe you brought up that essay (laughs) isn't that the one where he talks about you know she she probably was pretty good looking not she was probably ugly but she probably had a kind of sexiness to her or something i probably would have been attracted to her anyway or some something ridiculous like that
2: yeah i mean it i i found it to be a really entertaining piece and also i mean if you don't know her backstory um it's fascinating she 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 married a guy I think she she married a guy who wasn't such a good companion wasn't yeah. very literary um and he he suffered from mental illness and mm-hmm. then when she tried to divorce him he tried to or actually before he um spiraled into mental illness he embezzled her part of her fortune mm. right yeah so it's it's really something out of you know uh, one of her own books, yeah, yeah, Except, she
0: had kind of a rocky life. She did have some happiness later in life she 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 bounced back
2: yeah, I mean she she hung out with Henry James in Europe. She spent most of her life in Europe. it's um she you know it's kind of this fantasy that many writers and wannabe writers and readers have of you know enjoying your days spending talking about literature. Mm-hmm. And meeting people who are incredibly well read and passionate about literature and feeling having that safety. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like the, you know, one of the first, maybe literary circles that she had helped, mm. you know, modern yeah. literary circles. Yeah.
0: So that kind of leads us to this story, which takes place in Europe. And it was written when she was 72. So still, um, Wow. Still, still going strong at age 72. Yeah, it's very uh, amazing. It's very good for that age. She uh this in this story we have a pair of New Yorkers or really kind of a quartet, two ladies and their daughters who are not in New York but in Rome. Anything we should say before we listen to the story?
2: No, I think it's I didn't know anything about it other than the title which is very pro, um evocative mm-hmm. for for a title from that era. Yeah. Um so yeah, let's
0: to jump in. Okay. I wanted to mention one thing, which is I think at the beginning, it's a little bit hard to figure out who's who. And I just wanted to mention Mrs. Slade is the vigorous and energetic one. Mrs. Ansley is gentle, a little more of an old lady with her knitting. Mm-hmm. And yet, as Mrs. Slade reflects, their daughters are a bit reversed. So Mrs. Slade's daughter, Jenny, is the more prudent one. And Mrs. Ansley's daughter, Barbara, or Babs, is more dynamic. So we're going to see the two when they meet again in Rome, uh, where they had met as young women, and now they're being somewhat shunted to the side as their daughters are the young, eligible women that they once were 25 years before. It's a story of middle age, a story of character, a story of not knowing, a story of nostalgia and buried secrets. So let's take a quick break, then listen to Roman Fever. Roman Fever by Edith Wharton From the table at which they had been lunching, two American ladies of ripe but well-cared-for middle age moved across the lofty terrace of the Roman restaurant and, leaning on its parapet, looked first at each other and then down on the outspread glories of the Palatine and the Forum with the same expression of vague but benevolent approval. As they leaned there, a girlish voice echoed up gaily from the stairs leading to the court below. "'Well, come along, then,' it cried, not to them, but to an invisible companion. "'And let's leave the young things to their knitting.' And a voice as fresh laughed back. "'Oh, look here, Babs, not actually knitting.' "'Well, I mean figuratively,' rejoined the first. "'After all, we haven't left our poor parents much else to do.' "'At that point,' The turn of the stairs engulfed the dialogue. The two ladies looked at each other again, this time with a tinge of smiling embarrassment, and the smaller and paler one shook her head and colored slightly. Barbara, she murmured, sending an unheard rebuke after the mocking voice in the stairway. The other lady, who was fuller and higher in color, with a small determined nose supported by vigorous black eyebrows, gave a good humored laugh. That's what our daughters think of us. Her companion replied by a deprecating gesture. Not of us individually. We must remember that. It's just the collective modern idea of mothers. And you see, half guiltily, she drew from her handsomely mounted black handbag a twist of crimson silk run through by two fine knitting needles. One never knows, she murmured. The new system has certainly given us a good deal of time to kill, and sometimes I get tired just looking, even at this. Her gesture was now addressed to the stupendous scene at their feet. The dark lady laughed again, and they both relapsed upon the view, contemplating it in silence, with a sort of diffused serenity, which might have been borrowed from the spring effulgence of the Roman skies. The luncheon hour was long past, and the two had their end of the vast terrace to themselves. At its opposite extremity, a few groups, detained by a lingering look at the outspread city, were gathering up guidebooks and fumbling for tips. The last of them scattered, and the two ladies were alone on the air-washed height. "'Well, I don't see why we shouldn't just stay here,' said Mrs. Slade, the lady of the high color and energetic brows. Two derelict basket-chairs stood near, and she pushed them into the angle of the parapet, and settled herself in one, her gaze upon the palatine. After all, it's still the most beautiful view in the world. "'It always will be, to me,' assented her friend, Mrs. Ansley, with so slight a stress on the me that Mrs. Slade, though she noticed it, wondered if it were not merely accidental, like the random underlinings of old-fashioned letter-writers." Grace Ansley was always old-fashioned, she thought, and added aloud with a retrospective smile, it's a view we've both been familiar with for a good many years. When we first met here, we were younger than our girls are now. You remember? Oh, yes, I remember, murmured Mrs. Ansley, with the same undefinable stress. There's that head waiter wondering, she interpolated. She was evidently far less sure than her companion of herself and of her rights in the world. I'll cure him of wondering, said Mrs. Slade, stretching her hand toward a bag as discreetly opulent-looking as Mrs. Ansley's. Signing to the head-waiter, she explained that she and her friend were old lovers of Rome, and would like to spend the end of the afternoon looking down on the view, that is, if it did not disturb the service. The head-waiter, bowing over her gratuity, assured her that the ladies were most welcome, and would be still more so, if they would condescend to remain for dinner. A full moon night, they would remember. Mrs. Slade's black brows drew together, as though references to the moon were out of place and even unwelcome. But she smiled away her frown as the head waiter retreated. Well, why not? We might do worse. There's no knowing, I suppose, when the girls will be back. Do you even know back from where? I don't. Mrs. Ansley again colored slightly. "'I think those young Italian aviators we met at the embassy "'invited them to fly to Tarquinia for tea. "'I suppose they'll want to wait and fly back by moonlight.' "'Moonlight, moonlight. "'What a part it still plays. "'Do you suppose they're as sentimental as we were?' "'I've come to the conclusion "'that I don't in the least know what they are,' said Mrs. Ansley. "'And perhaps we didn't know much more about each other.' "'No.' Perhaps we didn't. Her friend gave a shy glance. I never should have supposed you were sentimental, Alida. Well, perhaps I wasn't. Mrs. Slade drew her lids together in retrospect, and for a few moments the two ladies, who had been intimate since childhood, reflected how little they knew each other. Each one, of course, had a label ready to attach to the other's name, Mrs. Delphin Slade, for instance, would have told herself, or anyone who asked her, that Mrs. Horace Ansley, twenty-five years ago, had been exquisitely lovely. No, you wouldn't believe it, would you? Though, of course, still charming, distinguished. Well, as a girl she had been exquisite, far more beautiful than her daughter, Barbara, though certainly Babs, according to the new standards at any rate, was more effective, had more edge, as they say funny where she got it, with those two nullities as parents. Yes, Horace Ansley was, well, just the duplicate of his wife, museum specimens of old New York. Good-looking, irreproachable, exemplary. Mrs. Slade and Mrs. Ansley had lived opposite each other, actually as well as figuratively, for years. When the drawing-room curtains in Number 20 East 73rd Street were renewed, number twenty-three, across the way, was always aware of it, and of all the movings, buyings, travels, anniversaries, illnesses, the tame chronicle of an estimable pair. Little of it escaped Mrs. Slade, but she had grown bored with it by the time her husband made his big coup in Wall Street, and when they bought an upper Park Avenue, had already begun to think, I'd rather live opposite a speakeasy for a change, at least one might see it raided, The idea of seeing Grace raided was so amusing that before the move she launched it at a woman's lunch. It made a hit and went the rounds. She sometimes wondered if it had crossed the street and reached Mrs. Ansley. She hoped not, but didn't much mind. Those were the days when respectability was at a discount, and it did the irreproachable no harm to laugh at them a little. A few years later, and not many months apart, both ladies lost their husbands. There was an appropriate exchange of wreaths and condolences and a brief renewal of intimacy in the half-shadow of their mourning. And now, after another interval, they had run across each other in Rome at the same hotel, each of them the modest appendage of a salient daughter. The similarity of their lot had again drawn them together, lending itself to mild jokes and the mutual confession that if in old days it must have been tiring to keep up with the daughters, it was now, at times, a little dull not to. No doubt, Mrs. Slade reflected, she felt her unemployment more than poor Grace ever would. It was a big drop from being the wife of Delphin Slade to being his widow. She had always regarded herself with a certain conjugal pride as his equal in social gifts, as contributing her full share to the making of the exceptional couple they were. But the difference after his death was irremediable. As the wife of the famous corporation lawyer, always with an international case or two on hand, every day brought its exciting and unexpected obligation, the impromptu entertaining of eminent colleagues from abroad, the hurried dashes on legal business to London, Paris, or Rome, where the entertaining was so handsomely reciprocated, the amusement of hearing in her wakes What? That handsome woman with the good clothes and the eyes is Mrs. Slade? The Slade's wife? Really? Generally the wives of celebrities are such frumps. Yes, being the Slade's widow was a dullish business after that. In living up to such a husband all her faculties had been engaged. Now she had only her daughter to live up to, for the son who seemed to have inherited his father's gifts had died suddenly in boyhood she had fought through that agony because her husband was there, to be helped and to help. Now, after the father's death, the thought of the boy had become unbearable. There was nothing left but to mother her daughter, and dear Jenny was such a perfect daughter that she needed no excessive mothering. Now, with Babs Ansley, I don't know that I should be so quiet, Mrs. Slade sometimes half-enviously reflected. But Jenny, who was younger than her brilliant friend, Was that rare accident an extremely pretty girl who somehow made youth and prettiness seem as safe as their absence? It was all perplexing, and to Mrs. Slade, a little boring. She wished that Jenny would fall in love with the wrong man, even that she might have to be watched, outmaneuvered, rescued. And instead, it was Jenny who watched her mother, kept her out of drafts, made sure that she had taken her tonic. Mrs. Ansley was much less articulate than her friend, and her mental portrait of Mrs. Slade was slighter and drawn with fainter touches. Alida Slade's awfully brilliant, but not as brilliant as she thinks, would have summed it up, though she would have added, for the enlightenment of strangers, that Mrs. Slade had been an extremely dashing girl, much more so than her daughter, who was pretty, of course, and clever in a way, but had none of her mother's, well, vividness, someone had once called it. Mrs. Ansley would take up current words like this and cite them in quotation marks as unheard of audacities. No, Jenny was not like her mother. Sometimes Mrs. Ansley thought Alita Slade was disappointed. On the whole, she had had a sad life, full of failures and mistakes. Mrs. Ansley had always been rather sorry for her, So these two ladies visualized each other, each through the wrong end of her little telescope. 2. For a long time they continued to sit side by side without speaking. It seemed as though, to both, there was a relief in laying down their somewhat futile activities in the presence of the vast memento mori which faced them. Mrs. Slade sat quite still, her eyes fixed on the golden slope of the Palace of the Caesars. And after a while, Mrs. Ansley ceased to fidget with her bag, and she too sank into meditation. Like many intimate friends, the two ladies had never before had occasion to be silent together, and Mrs. Ansley was slightly embarrassed by what seemed, after so many years, a new stage in their intimacy, and one with which she did not yet know how to deal. Suddenly, the air was full of that deep clangor of bells which periodically covers Rome with a roof of silver. Mrs. Slade glanced at her wristwatch. Five o'clock already, she said as though surprised. Mrs. Ansley suggested interrogatively. There's bridge at the embassy at five. For a long time, Mrs. Slade did not answer. She appeared to be lost in contemplation and Mrs. Ansley thought the remark had escaped her. But after a while, she said, as if speaking out of a dream, Bridge, did you say? Not unless you want to. But I don't think I will, you know. Oh, no, Mrs. Ansley hastened to assure her. I don't care to at all. It's so lovely here and so full of old memories, as you say. She settled herself in her chair and almost furtively drew forth her knitting Mrs. Slade took sideways note of this activity, but her own beautifully cared for hands remained motionless on her knee. I was just thinking, she said slowly, what different things Rome stands for to each generation of travelers. To our grandmothers, Roman fever. To our mothers, sentimental dangers. How we used to be guarded. To our daughters, no more dangers than the middle of Main Street. They don't know it but how much they're missing. The long golden light was beginning to pale, and Mrs. Ansley lifted her knitting a little closer to her eyes. Yes, how we were guarded. I always used to think, Mrs. Slade continued, that our mothers had a much more difficult job than our grandmothers. When Roman fever stalked the streets, it must have been comparatively easy to gather in the girls at the danger hour. But when you and I were young, with such beauty calling us— and the spice of disobedience thrown in, and no worse risk than catching cold during the cool hour after sunset. The mothers used to be put to it to keep us in, didn't they? She turned again toward Mrs. Ansley, but the latter had reached a delicate point in her knitting. One, two, three, slip two. Yes, they must have been, she assented, without looking up. Mrs. Slade's eyes rested on her with a deepened attention. She can knit. In the face of this, how like her, Mrs. Slade leaned back, brooding, her eyes ranging from the ruins which faced her to the long green hollow of the forum, the fading glow of the church fronts behind it, and the outlying immensity of the coliseum. Suddenly, she thought it's all very well to say that our girls have done away with sentiment and moonlight, but if Babs Ansley isn't out to catch that young aviator. The one who's a Marchese, then I don't know anything. And Jenny has no chance beside her. I know that, too. I wonder if that's why Grace Ansley likes the two girls to go everywhere together. My poor Jenny has a foil. Mrs. Slade gave a hardly audible laugh, and at the sound, Mrs. Ansley dropped her knitting. Yes? I... Oh, nothing. I was only thinking how your Babs carries everything before her. That Campolieri boy is one of the best matches in Rome. Don't look so innocent, my dear. You know he is. And I was wondering, ever so respectfully, you understand, wondering how two such exemplary characters as you and Horace had managed to produce anything quite so dynamic. Mrs. Slade laughed again with a touch of asperity. Mrs. Ansley's hands lay inert across her needles. She looked straight out at the great accumulated wreckage of passion and splendor at her feet. But her small profile was almost expressionless. At length, she said, I think you overrate Babs, my dear. Mrs. Slade's tone grew easier. No, I don't. I appreciate her and perhaps envy you. Oh, my girl's perfect. If I were a chronic invalid, I'd, well, I think I'd rather be in Jenny's hands there must be times. But there, I always wanted a brilliant daughter, and never quite understood why I got an angel instead. Mrs. Ansley echoed her laugh in a faint murmur. Babs is an angel, too. Of course, of course, but she's got rainbow wings. Well, they're wandering by the sea with their young men, and here we sit, and it all brings back the past a little too acutely. Mrs. Ansley had resumed her knitting. One might almost have imagined, if one had known her less well, Mrs. Slade reflected, that, for her also, too many memories rose from the lengthening shadows of those august ruins. But no, she was simply absorbed in her work. What was there for her to worry about? She knew that Babs would almost certainly come back engaged to the extremely eligible Campolieri and she'll sell the New York house, and settle down near them in Rome, and never be in their way. She's much too tactful, but she'll have an excellent cook, and just the right people in for bridge and cocktails, and a perfectly peaceful old age among her grandchildren. Mrs. Slade broke off this prophetic flight with a recoil of self-disgust. There was no one of whom she had less right to think unkindly than of Grace Ansley, Would she never cure herself of envying her? Perhaps she had begun too long ago. She stood up and leaned against the parapet, filling her troubled eyes with the tranquilizing magic of the hour. But instead of tranquilizing her, the sight seemed to increase her exasperation. Her gaze turned toward the Colosseum. Already its golden flank was drowned in purple shadow, and above it the sky curved crystal clear, without light or color. It was the moment when afternoon and evening hang balanced in mid-heaven. Mrs. Slade turned back and laid her hand on her friend's arm. The gesture was so abrupt that Mrs. Ansley looked up, startled. The sun set. You're not afraid, my dear? Afraid? Of Roman fever or pneumonia. I remember how ill you were that winter. As a girl, you had a very delicate throat, hadn't you? Oh, we're all right up here. Down below in the forum, it does get deathly cold all of a sudden. But not here. Ah, of course you know, because you had to be so careful. Mrs. Slade turned back to the parapet. She thought, I must make one more effort not to hate her. Aloud, she said, Whenever I look at the forum from up here, I remember that story about a great aunt of yours, wasn't she? A dreadfully wicked great aunt. Oh, yes, great-aunt Harriet, the one who was supposed to have sent her young sister out to the Forum after sunset to gather a night blooming flower for her album. All our great-aunts and grandmothers used to have albums of dried flowers. mrs Slade nodded. But she really sent her because they were in love with the same man. Well, that was the family tradition. They said aunt Harriet confessed it years afterward. At any rate, the poor little sister caught the fever and died. Mother used to frighten us with the story when we were children. And you frightened me with it, that winter when you and I were here as girls, the winter I was engaged to Delphin. Mrs. Ansley gave a faint laugh. Oh, did I really frighten you? I don't believe you're easily frightened. Not often, but I was then. I was easily frightened because I was too happy. "'I wonder if you know what that means?' "'I... yes,' Mrs. Ansley faltered. "'Well, I suppose that was why the story of your wicked aunt "'made such an impression on me. "'And I thought, there's no more Roman fever, "'but the Forum is deathly cold after sunset, "'especially after a hot day, "'and the Colosseum's even colder and damper.' "'The Colosseum?' "'Yes. "'It wasn't easy to get in after the gates were locked for the night.' Far from easy, still, in those days, it could be managed. It was managed often lovers met there who couldn't meet elsewhere. You knew that i-i dare say I don't remember you don't remember you don't remember going to visit some ruins or other one evening just after dark and catching a bad chill. You were supposed to have gone to see the moonrise. People always said that expedition was what caused your illness. There was a moment's silence. Then Mrs. Ansley rejoined. Did they? It was all so long ago. Yes, and you got well again, so it didn't matter. But I suppose it struck your friends, the reason given for your illness, I mean, because everybody knew you were so prudent on account of your throat, and your mother took such care of you. You had been out late sightseeing, hadn't you, that night? Perhaps I had. The most prudent girls aren't always prudent. What made you think of it now? Mrs. Slade seemed to have no answer ready, but after a moment she broke out. Because I simply can't bear it any longer. Mrs. Ansley lifted her head quickly. Her eyes were wide and very pale. Can't bear what? Why, you're not knowing that I've always known why you went. Why I went? Yes. You think I'm bluffing, don't you? Well, you went to meet the man I was engaged to, and I can repeat every word of the letter that took you there. While Mrs. Slade spoke, Mrs. Ansley had risen unsteadily to her feet. Her bag, her knitting, and gloves slid in a panic-stricken heap to the ground. She looked at Mrs. Slade as though she were looking at a ghost. No, no. No, don't, she faltered out. Why not? Listen, if you don't believe me. My one darling, things can't go on like this. I must see you alone. Come to the Coliseum immediately after dark tomorrow. There will be somebody to let you in. No one whom you need fear will suspect. But perhaps you've forgotten what the letter said. Mrs. Ansley met the challenge with an unexpected composure. Steadying herself against the chair, she looked at her friend and replied, No. I know it by heart, too. And the signature? Only your D.S.? Was that it? I'm right, am I? That was the letter that took you out that evening after dark? Mrs. Ansley was still looking at her. It seemed to Mrs. Slade that a slow struggle was going on behind the voluntarily controlled mask of her small, quiet face. I shouldn't have thought she had herself so well in hand, Mrs. Slade reflected, almost resentfully. But at this moment, Mrs. Zansley spoke. I don't know how you knew. I burned that letter at once. Yes, you would, naturally. You're so prudent. The sneer was open now. And if you burned the letter, you're wondering how on earth I know what was in it. That's it, isn't it? Mrs. Slade waited, but Mrs. Ansley did not speak. Well, my dear, I know what was in that letter, because I wrote it. You wrote it? Yes. The two women stood for a minute, staring at each other in the last golden light. Then Mrs. Ansley dropped back into her chair. Oh, she murmured, and covered her face with her hands. Mrs. Slade waited nervously for another word or movement. None came, and at length she broke out. I horrify you. Mrs. Ansley's hands dropped to her knees. The face they uncovered was streaked with tears. I wasn't thinking of you. I was thinking it was the only letter I ever had from him. And I wrote it. Yes, I wrote it. But I was the girl he was engaged to. Did you happen to remember that? Mrs. Ansley's head drooped again. I'm not trying to excuse myself. I remembered. And still you went. Still I went. Mrs. Slade stood looking down on the small bowed figure at her side. The flame of her wrath had already sunk, and she wondered why she had ever thought there would be any satisfaction in inflicting so purposeless a wound on her friend. But she had to justify herself. You do understand. I'd found out, and I hated you. Hated you. I knew you were in love with Delphin, and I was afraid, afraid of you, of your quiet ways, your sweetness, your, well... I wanted you out of the way, that's all, just for a few weeks, just till I was sure of him. So in a blind fury, I wrote that letter. I don't know why I'm telling you now. I suppose, said Mrs. Ansley slowly, it's because you've always gone on hating me. Perhaps. Or because I wanted to get the whole thing off my mind. She paused. I'm glad you destroyed the letter. Of course, I never thought you'd die. Mrs. Hansley relapsed into silence, and Mrs. Slade, leaning above her, was conscious of a strange sense of isolation, of being cut off from the warm current of human communion. You think me a monster. I don't know. It it was the only letter I had, and you say he didn't write it. Ah, how you care for him still. I cared for that memory, said Mrs. Hansley. Mrs. Slade continued to look down on her. She seemed physically reduced by the blow, as if, when she got up, the wind might scatter her like a puff of dust. Mrs. Slade's jealousy suddenly leaped up again at the sight. All these years the woman had been living on that letter, how she must have loved him, to treasure the mere memory of its ashes, the letter of the man her friend was engaged to. Wasn't it she who was the monster? You tried your best to get him away from me, didn't you? But you failed, and I kept him. That's all. Yes, that's all. I wish now I hadn't told you, I would no idea you'd feel about it as you do. I thought you'd be amused. It all happened so long ago, as you say, and you must do me the justice to remember that I had no reason to think you'd ever taken it seriously. How could I, when you were married to Horace Ansley two months afterward? As soon as you could get out of bed, your mother rushed you off to Florence and married you. People were rather surprised. They wondered at its being done so quickly, but I thought I knew. I had an idea you did it out of pique to be able to say you'd gotten ahead of Delphin and me. Kids have such silly reasons for doing the most serious things, and your marrying so soon convinced me that you'd never really cared. Yes, I suppose it would. Mrs. Ansley assented the clear heaven overhead was emptied of all its gold. Dusk spread over it abruptly darkening the seven hills. Here and there, lights began to twinkle through the foliage at their feet. Steps were coming and going on the deserted terrace, waiters looking out of the doorway at the head of the stairs, then reappearing with trays and napkins and flasks of wine. Tables were moved, chairs straightened. A feeble string of electric lights flickered out. A stout lady in a dust coat suddenly appeared, asking in broken Italian if anyone had seen the elastic band which held together her tattered Baedeker. She poked with her stick under the table at which she had lunched, the waiters assisting. The corner where Mrs. Slade and Mrs. Ansley sat was still shadowy and deserted. For a long time neither of them spoke. At length Mrs. Slade began again. I suppose I did it as a sort of joke, A joke. Well, girls are ferocious sometimes, you know. Girls in love especially. And I remember laughing to myself all that evening at the idea that you were waiting around there in the dark, dodging out of sight, listening for every sound, trying to get in. Of course I was upset when I heard you were so ill afterward. Mrs. Ansley had not moved for a long time, but now she turned slowly toward her companion. But I didn't wait. He'd arranged everything. He was there. We were let in at once, she said. Mrs. Slade sprang up from her leaning position. Delphin, there, they let you in? Ah, now you're lying, she burst out with violence. Mrs. Ansley's voice grew clearer and full of surprise. But of course he was there. Naturally, he came. Came? Came? "'How did he know he'd find you there? "'You must be raving.' "'Mrs. Ansley hesitated, as though reflecting. "'But I answered the letter. "'I told him I'd be there. "'So he came.' "'Mrs. Slade flung her hands up to her face. "'Oh, God! "'You answered? "'I never thought of your answering.' "'It's odd you never thought of it, "'if you wrote the letter. "'Yes, I was blind with rage.' Mrs. Ansley rose and drew her fur scarf about her. It is cold here. We'd better go. I'm sorry for you, she said, as she clasped the fur about her throat. The unexpected words sent a pang through Mrs. Slade. Yes, we'd better go. She gathered up her bag and cloak. I don't know why you should be sorry for me, she muttered. Mrs. Ansley stood looking away from her toward the dusky mass of the Coliseum. Well, because I didn't have to wait that night. Mrs. Slade gave an unquiet laugh. Yes, I was beaten there, but I oughtn't to begrudge it to you, I suppose, at the end of all these years. After all, I had everything. I had him for twenty-five years, and you had nothing but that one letter that he didn't write. Mrs. Hansley was again silent. At length she took a step toward the door of the terrace and turned back, facing her companion. I had Barbara, she said, and began to move ahead of Mrs. Slade toward the stairway. Okay, we're back. Mike, was this the first time you read Roman Fever? Sounds like it was.
2: It was. It was, um, you know, I picked up the collection. I, I was going to read it online because it's in the public domain, but I went to a library sale and I saw Roman Fever and other stories. <laughs> right. So I, I picked it up and I was actually reading. The person who had previously owned it had made, uh, ranked the stories mm-hmm. and ranked Roman Fever Third. Third yeah
0: (laughs) wow and it might be her most famous story yeah she's not particularly well known for her short stories and roman fever is a lot shorter than some of her others a lot of them are seven or eight thousand words i think this is under five thousand
2: but i i really enjoyed this story i think it's uh you know it's 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 i mean we can get to we'll get to the ending but it's It's quite a surprising setup.
0: Yeah, let's hold off on the ending. So I read it years ago. I was teaching it to a group of middle-aged women in Taiwan who were Mm -hmm. studying to get their master's degree in English literature. And it affected them. I could see it affect them, but it didn't really affect me all that much. Mm -hmm. Uh, This time when I read it, I really loved it. So, and I'm not sure exactly why. I could talk it through with you, I guess. So how did the prose strike you? Did it seem outdated or still fresh? I
2: found um the dialogue to be a little dated
0: a little dated, yeah,
2: yeah, but you know stuff like the outspread glories of the Palatine and the forum I, I i I rather enjoyed that I enjoyed mm. the way she painted Rome and Italy and the um, you could really kind of sense like the 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 pattern the routines of the everyday people, like the meals and like mm-hmm. you know evening time and shopping and it just it was such a delicate touch and it was really nice
0: it starts out a little leisurely whichever they like yeah and i mean in the whole story very little happens plot wise the two women are sitting overlooking the forum as the sun sets and lunch turns into dinner you've been there right
2: yeah the forum Yeah. yeah yeah we were there a couple of years ago we did a week in rome uh spring break so yeah
0: I kind of liked how she she treated Rome I mean it was it's definitely present it's definitely a big character in the story but it she doesn't really hit us over the head with all the themes she doesn't she doesn't have a character talk about how ancient history is buried under rubble and ruins and can be excavated by new and future generations and which which really is what the story is about uh, you know she she just lets it sit there. It's kind of subtle in the way that the 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 theme of rome as as history is a parallel to the the uncovering that we're going to see in the in the past of these two ladies
2: yeah and then then immediately goes into the fact that they're they're mothers and they have grown up daughters mm, mm-hmm. and it's just a very nice shift from the city to the to these tourists, yeah. Uh, and because I think for most people, probably reading this in English, you know they they're not Romans and they they are tourists. So you know h- how you connect to a city when you're a tourist? You know, I mean, the the other than walking around and taking in the sights, it's shopping. Yeah. So.
1: Yeah.
0: Although I <laughs> I have to say. They are so wealthy. It's a little bit hard for me to identify with the two of them. I think at one point they say, "You know, the daughters are probably going to go off with those Italian aviators they met at the embassy, <laughs> <laughs> right?"
2: And uh, and they go flying, right? They go, yeah, yeah, they they're gonna. To the
0: aviators are gonna fly them to Tarquina. Yeah, and then uh, there was another point where nineteen.
2: Um, it was written in nineteen eleven. I mean, it was
0: the. Uh, wait, wait. Was that the year I had? Nineteen thirty. 1930... Oh, 1930? Yeah, nineteen thirty. Let's see. Where did I put it? Nineteen thirty-two, I think. Oh, or okay.
2: Nineteen thirty-four. Okay.
0: Yeah, nineteen thirty-four. Okay. Another thing with the wealth that kind of got me was there's a, uh, the point where, uh, and this kind of draws the distinction between Missus Slade and Missus Ansley, or how Missus Slade perceives Missus Ansley is... Mm-hmm. The 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 waiter comes by and says something about, or Mrs. Ansley says something about the waiter. Uh, I suppose he'll wonder why we're still here. And she says, "Well, I'll make him stop wondering." And she reaches for her purse and pulls out money. And it's kind of it's kind <laughs> of a, a a way of of being a tourist. That's almost. I'm imagining that in today's world they'd be the the type of American tourists who are. Uh, Renting hot air balloons so they can get a better view of the Coliseum at night or something or doing some kind of uh, uh, crazy, expensive sightseeing that I just wouldn't be a part of.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's it's always hard to relate to someone who doesn't feel the pressures of having to work and, you know, having to be at a certain place or being supervised by, you know, a boss and that kind of freedom while in real life it's wonderful reading about it is not that it can be, can, can, can you know, it suffers from a lack of engagement with the reader. Yeah. Can it can. So, I mean, I think lines like uh, the characterization of the two women really say, you know, really um, grabs me when I feel the, that kind of pull like, Oh, they're just rich ladies who lunch. Like there's a line um, page 13 that says it was a big drop from being the wife of Delphin Slade yeah. to being his widow, right? That's, that's just like a perfect line. That's yeah. Great.
0: So let's get to the mm-hmm. ladies in a second. I had one more thing I wanted to say about the setting, which is here's where I did identify with it: is this idea that you're near something beautiful. So why race around? You know, if if, if, mm-hmm. if Mrs. Slade specifically says at one point, "Um, oh we." We, we, we could do worse than this or we probably can't do better than this anyway. So it's kind of like, just because you have lunch there, if you're at this gorgeous, if you have this gorgeous view overlooking the forum, why not just stay? And I remember feeling that when I was traveling. And in mm-hmm. fact, one time I was at uh, the Taj Mahal and I was there with my sister and we just sat there and we just got like coffees at this cafe that had a view of the Taj Mahal and we just sat there all day long and we just kept, you know <laughs> we'd we'd order more coffee or we'd get a lunch or we'd just have them bring us stuff but we just watched the sun rise and then the sunset set on this beautiful building and it just felt so serene and and the yeah. colors were changing and the shadows were changing and this it, this building which is so gorgeous kind of transformed in front of our eyes it was like watching a a slow moving film or something of this or a a painting, you know, walking through a museum and seeing different paintings of this same beautiful building. And it that I could identify with you don't necessarily have to have a lot of money. You know, you can you can buy that for the the price of a few coffees or something. So I did like that. But let's talk about the women. I think actually the story I divided into two parts. Mm-hmm. Um I know there's numbered, so that's one way of dividing it, but I kind of there's a part where the story really accelerates and i think it starts where mrs slade thinks to herself i must make one more effort not to hate her Mm -hmm. Um, so let's stick to the first half for now before we get to that part which is when the secrets of the past start to unfold so who are the ladies what are they like uh how does wharton present them what did you see here
2: yeah, I mean it, it, you get the sense that they they're competitive mm-hmm. not only all, all their lives but now through their children. They live
0: they lived across the street from each other on East 73rd Street, I think.
2: Yeah, and then the the way they sort of keep tabs on each other's daughters is mm-hmm. is really is really something because I think that is a bit of a dying Uh, pastime now I think people know better than to talk about their you know their friends kids in this manner I mean it's almost (laughs) it's almost I mean it is passive-aggressive the way they they discuss each other's daughters
1: yeah
0: but don't you think it still happens
2: it does but I feel like maybe it's a little more hidden yeah you know here and, and obviously it's a story and it's it's what it does in such a short span is is amazing but there are a couple of moments where i just felt like it was it was like a little um you know tic-tac-toe you know in terms of like you know what the daughters were like
0: mm. you mean that that uh mrs slade is bold and fun and mrs ansley is yeah. boring but babs is bold and fun she has an edge like mrs right. slade thinks and and Slade says something like, boy, if I was sick and in bed, Jenny you know my daughter she's no one would be better, but right. she kind of wishes that that uh-huh. Jenny was a little more like Babs where she would be putting her foot in her mouth and getting in trouble and getting into sort of scrapes and and all of having kind of adventures that she needed help getting out of because that would give Mrs. Slade something more to do then uh Jenny doesn't really need her. Jenny is more like taking care of Mrs. Slade already and Mrs. Slade feels like that makes her feel old.
2: Yeah, I mean it's I guess sometimes I think with the short story is like can it be reread? And I, I I think Roman fever can be reread, but you need like yeah. ten years. <laughs> you know, like an Alice Monroe, you could probably reread it in like a couple of years. Mm. You know?
0: I'm going to disagree with you slightly here because <laughs> I think I think it's worth reading the story twice. I agree with you that you can wait 10 years in between. Yeah. But I think when you read it once, I think you should read it a second time. Yeah. Because when you read it the second time, after you get the big surprise ending, you right. realize all of the ways. So not to jump ahead to the actual surprise, but you do see that Mrs. Ansley has a secret as well. And it's revealed really in the last line of the story. And once you see that, um, Mm -hmm. then you, when you go back through the beginning, you see how much of these characterizations are from Mrs. Slade's point of view. And you Mm -hmm. see that every time she's trying to kind of impose that on Mrs. Ansley, Mrs. Ansley is responding in a way that you blow right past when you first read it. But when you know the secret that she's harboring, everything unfolds and you see what Mrs. Ansley is is doing and how Mrs. Slade is misinterpreting it. So it's kind of a fun thing to do when you read it that way. You see how careful Wharton was to make everything Mrs. Ansley is doing, not to reveal the secret for someone on the first read, but on the second read you see that she's acting perfectly consistently and that if you were open to the clues or if you had some inkling of the secret or if you've read the story already once, you'll see that it's actually not such a huge surprise that Mrs. Slade has been in the dark on this. It's it's her own blindness that has kept her from seeing the truth.
2: But part of me feels like I don't know enough of uh, Grace Ansley to feel like that what happens at the end is really like who she is. Yeah. I mean... You know, I right. mean, that's the thing about short story devices. Ansley's,
0: Ansley's a bit of a tool to yeah. show that it's like the one thing, I don't know if you noticed this, yeah. the one thing when it comes to Mrs. Ansley defining Mrs. Slade, Yeah. the description is, Alita Slade's awfully brilliant, but not as brilliant as she thinks, <laughs> <laughs> which is perfect for the story. But it's like, we get very little else, you know, we get. Uh we don't get much of Mrs. Ansley defining herself. And we don't get even much of her take on Mrs. Slade other than that. When you first read it, you think, oh, Mrs. Slade is cocky or confident and Mrs. Ansley is a little jealous of her. And you think it's it's just mm-hmm. the uh the same um that the two of them just have this different worldview and this different level of excitement or animation around them. But then when you when you know the ending, mm-hmm. you see that uh Mrs. Slade has really been deceived, her whole world and her whole past has been pulled up from under her. Actually, I don't know why we're we're being so careful not to spoil the ending, because I'm gonna read the story. So yeah. <laughs> the, the readers will already know it. So why don't we let's see. One more question, I guess, before we get to the the revealing the revelation. Did mm-hmm. you feel I felt like even before all the drama that happens as mm-hmm. the secrets of the past become start to unravel i felt like i was really enjoying just the dynamic of these uh women and their daughters and just the idea that uh mrs slade liked the other woman's daughter better than her Mm -hmm. own i felt like that was already such an interesting dynamic i was kind of enjoying that and wondering how that was going to turn out
2: yeah, no, I, I agree. I think that dynamic when I when I say the dialogue is dated, uh, there are parts where I really liked the fact that it was dated. It was almost like watching like some kind of like film footage, old film footage, and um hearing the their voices that sounded so bizarre to my, you know, contemporary ear. And it was when I felt like I was being push toward the the, the, the ending that yeah. I felt like well I, I really didn't get to know them very well
1: mm-hmm.
2: you know and I guess part of it is this idea that in Rome people act differently than they would back in New York or in London but you know I don't I mean I, part of me can't feel help thinking that. Like, I wonder if anyone under the age of twenty-five has read this story. Yeah. Like, like, this story feels so like old personish. I can't. Yeah. I can't shake that.
0: Well, and do you think? Uh, I mean, on the one hand, the story picks up speed and it's got this momentum, and you kind of start to read it like a thriller. You know mm-hmm. that that it's it's moving very fast. But on the other hand, I kind of. I feel like we've moved beyond these themes a little bit. I mean, the women here are appendages of their husbands and I feel like our changed views of morality has made the big secret uh, a little less shocking.
2: Yeah. I mean, the shocking thing would have been like if like, you know, Babs was my daughter, you know, like it was like actually, (laughs) well, I don't know. Like, or, you know, Babs was not my daughter. I mean that that would be like the, like the modern twist on it, rather than the fact that they had met in the middle of the night. I mean, yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. So,
2: it's... but you know, the more I read about her, the story is amazing. She, you know, I, I didn't realize how conservative she was. She she opposed woman suffrage. I was mm. shocked by that. Yeah, she thought that it would like undermine society. Right.
0: Well, hold that thought (laughs) while we finish up the story, because then I've got a special uh, quiz for you coming up here. Okay. Um, You know, the only thing that I thought was still kind of shocking was that Mrs. Slade sent Mrs. Ansley on this wild goose chase when they were younger, (laughs) sent her on a wild goose chase to try to make her sick, even knowing that a trick like that had killed Mrs. Ansley's aunts or her aunt's younger sister so you know the the actual shock of that mrs ansley met with mrs slade's fiance and got pregnant by him and hid the secret for 25 years i found that to be a little bit less shocking than i think people probably did in
2: 1934 yeah you're right i mean it's um infidelity and Trists and uh, you know secret meetings it, it it meant a lot more like a, a book like um the go-between i don't know if you ever read that by l p hartley Mm-mm. oh it's the, the the secret meetings and that they're very surprising to the modern reader but back then it must have been just scandalous mm, right yeah.
0: okay so Edith Wharton as a conservative. Have you heard of Edith Wharton's secret erotica? <laughs> no, I have not. Would it surprise you to hear that she started to write an erotic novel?
2: Wow. I mean, it. She's <laughs> she's super smart, and I'm not saying that smart people um, have no morality, <laughs> but they they certainly question <laughs> they question everything. So,
0: well, i I'm, I'm yeah. not going to say that people who write erotica are immoral, but uh, as a as a conservative, yeah, I guess it's a little. Uh, it was certainly surprising when people found it among her letters and papers.
2: Yeah, I mean, I meant it, it was it was a moral for her time, yeah. you know.
0: Well, um, you will be able to be the judge because that's our quiz. So, <laughs> this was written around 1919, after mm-hmm. the end of her first marriage and when she, or her her marriage and when she had started her affair with a journalist named Morton Fullerton. Uh, she right. was in her late 40s. This is when she had her own sort of renaissance. And the story is called Beatrice Palmatto. It's a fragment. Mm-hmm. It's an outline and a two-page scene. wasn't published in her lifetime. Her novels really have no sex in them at all. So this was kind of a surprise. Her reputation was, was one of buttoned-up characters and kind of this tame narration. But I am going to read some excerpts to you from Beatrice Palmato. Mm-hmm. And some are real and some I've made up. So you tell me if these were written by Edith Wharton or if they are counterfeit. Mm-hmm. Okay. Are you ready? And yep. I should advise my listeners that this becomes, <laughs> I would say, R-rated. Um, I was going to say,
2: is this like penthouse letters? <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. Well, it's erotica. <laughs> I guess it, it's X-rated, but it's in such um, such ornate prose that uh, it's not exactly... it's. it's I don't know. It's explicit, but it's not uh, a filthy. Let's put it that way. Okay. Number one. One by one, his hands gained her bosom, and she felt her two breasts pointing up to them, the nipples hard as coral, but sensitive as lips to his approaching touch. And now his warm palms were holding each breast as if in a cup, clasping it, modeling it, softly kneading it as he whispered to her, like the bread of the angels.
2: It, that That is so corny, it must be her. <laughs> that
0: is Edith Wharton, yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, number two. Ah, she gasped, pressing her hands against her sharp nipples and flinging her legs apart. Instantly, one of her hands was caught, and while Mr. Palmato, rising, bent over her, his lips on hers again, she felt his firm fingers pressing into her hand that strong, fiery muscle that they used in their old joke to call his third hand.
2: Oh my God. Um, I'm going to guess that's not her.
0: That is Edith Wharton. (laughs) Number three. With his knees on the divan, he rose on his shanks like a proud, lustful steed. It was the first time she had seen his third hand exposed. And as she gazed at his swelling member, she felt a deep sensation of awakening, like sunlight illuminating the haystacks in the works of the great French painter, filling her being with warmth and color.
2: I, I mean, the, the reference to, you know, France, I, I'm going to guess it's her. That's counterfeit.
0: I fooled you. Okay, we got three more, but they're shorter. Number four. Suddenly his head bent lower, and with a deeper thrill she felt his lips pressed upon that quivering invisible bud, and then the delicate firm thrust of his tongue, so full and yet so infinitely subtle, pressing apart those closed petals, and forcing itself in deeper and deeper through the passage that glowed and seemed to become illuminated at its approach.
2: Oh my God. I mean, I, I'm now I'm officially stumped. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm going to guess that's not her.
0: That is her. <laughs> Edith, our Edith. Uh, oh number five. My little girl, he breathed, sinking down beside her, his muscular trunk bare and the third hand quivering and thrusting upward between them, a drop of moisture purling at its tip.
2: Is that her? That is her. <laughs> and
0: finally, number six, she flung oh. herself upon the swelling member and began to caress it insinuatingly with her tongue.
2: <laughs> That's so bad, but I, I I don't know. I It's not her, right? That
0: was her. Wow. <laughs> I feel like I need a cold shower. I think you were about 2 for 6 on that. <laughs> <laughs> it is a mind bender. Thank oh you, God. Mrs. Wharton. Okay, anything else we should cover?
2: Um I'm going to I'm going to read some more short stories by her because uh, you know, oh, I, yeah. I guess yeah, the, the flip side to the short stories being a little contrived and forced is that they're very short.
0: Well, was Ethan Frome in that book? No. No, that's that's more of a novella length. So what, what are the number one and number two of your uh your critic in that who ranked the stories?
2: Um let's see. Souls belated hmm. and The Angel at the Grave. Okay.
0: So those are the two to read if if our readers, our listeners are uh
2: looking for more short stories by Edith Wharton. Wait, I mean this is some person who <laughs> used to own this copy. <laughs> <laughs> i think i think uh you're really you know gambling <laughs> well it's like
0: it's yeah. like getting a recommendation off the internet or from yeah. reddit or something it's like primitive reddit
2: yeah i mean i guess they should have a rotten tomatoes for books
0: <laughs> yeah okay well mike as always thank you for joining me on the history of literature thanks jack That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Mike for joining me. He'll be back for some John Steinbeck soon with some top tens and some Faulkner. Faulkner? Faulkner around the corner. I hope you enjoyed it. We've also got Conan Doyle and Rudyard Kipling and Mary Kingsley coming up, along with a fascinating story of a writer whose success was so unexpected she was actually put on trial to prove that she wrote her poems A fascinating story. We'll have all that coming up soon on the History of Literature. So please do subscribe if you haven't already. And paint your garage door with the words, subscribe to the History of Literature podcast with Jack Wilson. That's in all caps. I know what you're saying. Jack, I did that last year. And to that I say, what have you got against tradition? Come on. Don't be such a hater. But hey, I'm flexible. If you have a barn, fine, paint the side of that instead. Or if you just want to paint it on the side of your car, that's fine too, especially if you drive around. I'm flexible, people. So that's J-A-C-K-E, Wilson, in all caps, on your garage door, or the side of your car, or your barn, or maybe your cows, if you have cows, your horses, your neighbor's house, whatever. Or maybe just touch the little button on your phone, if you haven't already. Subscribe five stars, whatever you can do. I'm Jack Wilson, the beggar, the beggar Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.